and the majority of people with that gene will not get MS. Identical twins, one gets the disease, one does not. You as a couple would design your life so that you can really serve your children's needs in those first few years. There are so many rule books that we're carrying around in our heads that come from different voices of authority. Your response to this vaccine really hedges a lot on giving your immune system time to actually do the work. I lose my goddamn mind anytime I'm in a supermarket and I see a cucumber wrapped in single-use plastic. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends. I'm so excited to have these best of episodes at the end of the year. I started this last year and I knew I just had to make it a thing every year. It's really an incredible moment to look back at all the incredible guests that I've had on the show, all the amazing memories that we've made, and it's a great chance to highlight some of the truly epic life-changing moments on the show this year, especially if you miss them or if you listen to them, hearing it again so you don't forget. Of course, there were so many incredible guests, so it was really hard to make this lineup, but I really hope you guys enjoy and I can't wait to hear what you think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash best of 2023 part one. Those show notes will have a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about. So definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie 
Avalon and use the coupon code CLEANFORALL20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this part one of the best of the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast 2023. All right. Well, starting off this collection, I actually immediately knew who I wanted to start with. And how could I not start with Gabor Mate? Wow. (laughs) This was so surreal. I will say um, I'm always super honored to interview all of the guests that I have on and I really take it in and it's such a magical moment. I don't get as nervous as I did when I first launched this show. I was so nervous going in to interview Gabor Mate. I mean, he's a legend. And I remember the timing of this. It was right after he had just interviewed Prince Harry. So that was like the vibe (laughs) surrounding him. And it ended up being just amazing. And he is so kind, so approachable. We actually, in real time, had basically a therapy session. Like he gave me a therapy session and I was like, okay, this is happening right now. (laughs) So that part is not this clip. This clip is actually something he talked about that I was really interested to hear his thoughts on, which is basically the role of having children. And can you have children as a mom and still be a career woman? So we talk about that. So please enjoy the wisdom of the legendary Gabor Mate. You know, and as a parent, sometimes I was depressed and sometimes I was very joyful and jovial, you know? Very confusing for my kids. But the point is, when a parent is distressed or, or, or stressed, the child automatically picks up on that energetically, and they make it their own fault. Because the children are narcissists by nature, by which I don't mean the pejorative or pathological sense. I just mean in the pure meaning of the word. They think it's all about them. So if the parent is depressed, oh, something wrong with me. I better work hard to make sure that she's not, you know? which is a reversal of roles. So we can pass on our stresses to other our children, not by doing anything bad to them, but just by not having dealt with our own stress. Then the child picks up on it. So stress can be passed on two ways. I think the major way that stress is passed on is that the unresolved trauma or stress imprints of the parents get automatically passed on to the child whether or not the parents wish that or not. Of course, the parents don't wish it at all. 
but they can't help it. And that certainly happened between my wife and I and our children. What about the initial instinct for childbearing? Because you do talk in the book about how it is natural and how we, you know, we get evolutionarily rewards from having children, raising children. Like I personally don't perceive having a desire to have children. Did I cognitively decide that? But deep down, I really do want children. Okay. Since you're asking me, you want my honest opinion. Yes. (laughs) First of all, don't make yourself wrong. Okay. Neither do you don't, you know? So if you don't, you don't, you know, so I, I would never talk you out of it or into it. But I'll tell you what I think. It's not that we should want to have children. It's sort of nature wants itself. I mean, all nature, whether it's plant or animal, wants to reproduce. When I say wants to, it's not even conscious. A tree doesn't want to reproduce. It just does. And really, that's why we're Hollywood movies aside. The reason we have a sex drive is to support reproduction. You know? So when that's not there, there's two things that come up for me as potentials. One is, and I don't know your personal life at all, so I'm theorizing and it's totally generalized. It may not apply to you at all, okay? But one is, maybe you have not met the person with whom you feel safe enough to take on that task, okay? That's a possibility. And if you haven't met that person, there might be reasons why you haven't. Which brings me to my more basic point, is that I think some people who don't want children they don't want to repeat their own childhoods. Unconsciously, they want to recreate the pain. So that may be going on for you as well. Again, Melanie, I can't tell you if either of these dynamics are true. I can only give you a general impression. It sounds like a lot energetically and stress-wise. And if I were to have a child, I would want to be the perfect parent. And I would want, you know, my whole life would become that. And I would, that's what my life would become, which would be, great, then I don't think I'd be able to do all of my career life goals and everything like that. And I am haunted by like, what if they turn out to be a not nice person? Well, 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 you know what? You wouldn't be able to pursue your career goals. Not for the first three years. If you listen to me, or not just mothers, but fathers, if I could live my life over again, forget my medical practice. Not that I wouldn't be a doctor, but I wouldn't be a workaholic doctor. My priority would be to work less and to be at home more with my kids. Because that's when they need you the most. That's when their brains develop. That's when their personalities develop. That's when they need to have this unconditional loving acceptance. In modern society, we're at a handicap because human beings were never meant to parent on their own or even as a couple. We were meant to parent in groups. That's how we evolved for millions of years. So parents today are in this dilemma of, if I have a kid, it interrupts everything. In a hunter-gatherer tribe, having a kid didn't interrupt anything. Life just went on, and everybody supported your parenting. So part of what you're describing is the dilemma of modern life, particularly the dilemma of modern professional women. You know, so that's genuine. And you're, but you're quite right. And if you felt safe enough with somebody who was really a partner to you, where you could discuss this, then you'd make a decision that not just you, the mother, but you as a couple would design your lives so that you can really serve your children's needs in those all essential early first few years, you might feel differently about it. You'd feel partnered and supported. And yeah, no big deal to put your career on hold for three years. You know, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. 
I'm just, I'm just saying that it all depends on circumstances. You're quite right. If you're going to be a parent, for the first few years, that needs to be your main task from the child's point of view. I've had many men tell me, like, well, you know, you can have, like, nannies and all this. I'm like, that's not, that's no. (laughs) That's not the answer. That's not the answer. That's not the real answer, you know? The real answer is, can I and my partner create a life where our first priority in the early years is our children's well-being and our relationship with them? That's the real question. I think it's possible. But it needs to be very conscious and very deliberate. And because of the stresses on parents in this society, and because of the demands, especially on women in society, you know that in the United States, 25, 25% of women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth for economic reasons. Well, it's, it's toxic. It's children are being abandoned in, 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 in the actual sense because the children needs to be with that mother for many, 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 many months in the point of view of development. So when you look at the rate of children being diagnosed with ADHD and anxiety and depression, the rising rate of childhood suicide, you know, the New York Times and the New Yorker both had articles in the last six months about the unexplicable rise of childhood suicide. It's not explicable. In this society, parents are too stressed and parents have to pay attention to so many things outside their children's needs that children are feeling abandoned, whether their parents want to or not, unconsciously, despite the loving best intentions of the parents. So kids are more and more stressed. Of course they're more anxious. Of course their attention is more scattered. Of course they're more oppositional. Of course they're more depressed. And it's not the parents' fault. It's the toxicity of this culture. All right. For our second guest, we have a woman that I absolutely adore. This was actually my second time interviewing her. I have now interviewed her three times in total. I knew Terry Walls had to be in this lineup. She has honestly done so much work when it comes to the role of diet and specifically the paleo approach to addressing autoimmune conditions. Her clinical work is just so profound, so appreciated. For those of you not familiar with Terry, she actually reversed her multiple sclerosis via diet and supplements and lifestyle. She used to be in a wheelchair. Now she can walk. She is so inspiring. I just really adore her. And on top of that, she's just such a genuine, kind, sincere human being. And that really, really comes off in speaking with her. I just love her so much to know. And it is such an honor to know her. And of course, there were so many things that I could have picked from this episode, but I picked this section because after airing it, I was surprised. I got so much feedback about this one thing that we talk about in just a second. People were shocked to learn about it. And I'm being super teasy right now and not telling you what it actually is. (laughs) So, all right, without further ado, please enjoy this clip from my conversation with Dr. Terry Walls. Can anybody get MS or do you still have to have a genetic piece? So and we'll talk about MS. Well, this, the sequence looks like this. You have genetics, and there are probably 300 to 400 genes that we've identified that increase your risk for MS. Now, for the vast majority of these genes, the amount of risk is about a half percent to maybe a percent, maybe 2%. There are a couple of genes that have a bigger impact maybe a 10 or 15%. 
But the vast majority, it's very tiny, and the vast majority of people with that gene will not get MS. And we have people who are identical twins. One gets it, and, and they were raised in the same household. One gets the disease, one does not. We have identical twins raised not in the same household. And then you have sibling studies and parent studies. So we know siblings and parents, you know, do have a higher risk. But So genes are part of it. Then the next thing that needs to happen is uh, an infection that you don't completely clear or clear correctly. And right now we've identified 16 different viruses and bacteria that are associated with a higher risk of MS and other autoimmunity. And the reality, Melanie, is nearly everyone has been exposed to at least one of these 16 and probably many of these 16 microbes. But still, the vast majority don't get MS or an autoimmune problem. So there's other factors involved. And my colleagues in the MS world would say, we don't know what they are. And my response was, okay, but we know what the factors are that are associated with good health. So let's work on using those to improve the health of the individual. At the very least, you are addressing the comorbidities. And what we see is reduced fatigue, higher quality of life, better motor function, better thinking function, better MRIs. And that you know people get closer and closer to normal functioning. That infection concept. Step one is the gene. Step two is the infection. Step three is all the environmental stuff. Wow. Okay. I'm just like very shocked because I feel like I don't hear people talking about that. Does that infection step, is that specific to MS or for other conditions as well? Yeah, it's probably true for every autoimmune condition that you have a genetics, then you have an infection that you don't properly clear. And then the Environmental factors, toxin exposures, diet, exercise, stress, sleep, hormone balance, microbiome, all of those interact. We have, you know, a progressively more severe disruption or worsening of our health behaviors. People are sleep are sleeping less. There's more stress, more conflict, more hormone disruption, we don't have enough light, the quality of our food is declining. So we have all of those insults that accelerate the disease process. I was at the Consortium of MS Centers, uh, which is the annual international meeting where the clinical people who take care of MS patients, the researchers who do clinical research, it's not about the mouse people, it's about the people who do clinical research on humans, we're all there. The drug companies are there. Patient advocacy groups are there. And then some MS people are there. So they have a couple thousand people there. And what was so remarkable, I started going to this meeting five years ago, and I was the only one with a research poster talking about food, just me. This year, there were many more people with research about food, several oral presentations and symposium about diet, and researchers who were talking about clinical trials and aging MS, molecular pathways, et cetera. These PhDs were all saying diet and lifestyle, particularly diet and exercise, 
are, are just so important. That MS is a disease of accelerated aging. And I've been talking about that actually for years. And that, and they said, we don't really have anything to fix that. Metformin, some very interesting animal model studies. And then there was diet and exercise. And I'm like, yes. And in lecture after lecture, people were, were talking about the molecular mechanisms, potentially some drugs, and then saying, and yes, there is diet and exercise. They might, might have thrown in stress reduction and sleep. So super interesting. We're certainly making progress. Clinicians are being told that you got to talk to your patients about diet and exercise, that that should be an adjunct to every treatment conversation that's happening. Well, one more question about the infection, the step two in the, the process. Is it the actual infection itself that is causing the continued problem, or is it the infection's effect on the immune system and how it modulates the immune system? It's the infection's impact on the immune system. And what I want your listeners to know is we had thought, I'm in my 60s, so when I went to medical school, I was taught that we're sterile. The urine is sterile, the blood is sterile, my bones are sterile, my brain's sterile, that, you know, we're, we're sterile. We're not. Now that we're, we have this more sophisticated looking at our tissues, including our bloodstream, our spinal fluid, our brain, our bones, turns out we're packed with organisms, even in the areas that I thought were sterile when I was young. Isn't that wild? That I think it's, there's a debate, is it a quarter or a third of our DNA is borrowed stuff from viruses? And that when we get infected with a virus, it, it's never completely gone. We keep it under control with our immune system. We keep those viruses in our brain under control with our immune system. We keep the bacteria load in our body, in our blood, in our bones, in our lungs, <laughs> under control with our immune system. And as we age, you know, it begins faltering around, in men, faltering around age 40, and women, once we go through menopause, you know, at whatever age that happens, our immune cells begin to age. They can't control the viruses, the bacteria, as effectively, which is why pneumonia becomes a bigger problem when we're older, why bladder infections become kidney infections, become bloodstream infections when we're older, why we get demented as we get older, and we may begin to have more confusion and that we may begin to have some encephalitis or activation of the brain infections when we're older. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples. 
meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. All right, friends. Our next guest is somebody who I read his book and it honestly changed my life and that I see the world differently now. Before reading Matt Simon's book, A Poison Like No Other, I saw the world one way, and now I see it a different way. I did not realize how prevalent microplastics are in our world. And this is coming from me, who was already talking about the problems with plastics. I had no idea. Mind-blowing. Did you know most of our clothing is plastic? Who knew? And then to be even more shocking, I got utterly disillusioned with the concept of recycling. So here we go. for Matt Simon's thoughts on that. I definitely recommend checking out his book and hopefully we can help make change with this whole plastic situation, which by the way, I was already creating my Avalonic supplements with glass bottles before reading A Poison Like No Other. Then I read his book and I was like, oh my goodness, I am so glad we are using glass bottles for that. That's a side note. Please enjoy this conversation with Matt Simon. One of the things that bothers me is stuff like There's so much unnecessary plastic, in my opinion. Like I eat a lot of cucumbers, like a lot, and I buy them in bulk at Costco. And there's so much plastic wrapped around them, you know, like in the actual cucumbers. And then there's like the plastic layer around that. I was always just concerned historically before reading your book about the plastic touching the cucumber and then somehow leaching into the cucumber and having that effect. I lose my goddamn mind anytime I'm in a supermarket and I see a cucumber wrapped in single-use plastic. It's like, are we not aware that cucumbers have their own skins that work perfectly fine? And this is a, this is a talking point in the plastics industry is that plastics are so useful because they keep our food fresher longer. And, and that means there's less plastic and that means there's less food waste in the United States, which is, I think, the numbers on actual food waste in the United States would say otherwise. That also doesn't take into account the fact that in the United States, we recycle about 5% of plastic, which is crazy. It, historically, about 10% of plastics ever produced have been recycled. The rest have been thrown into landfills or burned or just chucked into the environment. So when we produce this plastic, we don't recycle it in the United States, we actually ship it across oceans to developing countries. Until recently, China was taking a lot of this stuff, but a couple of years ago said, no, we're not doing that anymore. So it's it's now flowing into other countries that are openly burning it. So when you hear the plastics industry say, well, it cuts down on food waste. Well, we are then shipping that plastic across oceans that 
it comes with a tremendous amount of carbon emissions involved, where it's then burned and sent into the atmosphere. It doesn't seem particularly efficient to me. When the plastics are burned and go up into the atmosphere, is that ash still plastic? Yes. So it will, it's, it's, it's extra bad. So it will burn and it'll break into smaller pieces and it will go up as ash. But in that ash is, is it's basically microplastic ash and maybe some larger pieces of plastic because the thing of fires is that that warm air rises and propels all that particulate matter into the atmosphere. But you're also releasing just straight up chemicals when you do that beyond beyond the microplastics. And there have been a number of reports in these developing countries that are that are openly burning this stuff of terrible health problems for people living around this stuff because this this plastic is a is a it long it was long pitched as benign material. Oh, it's very safe. It makes actually things safer. It makes our food safer. Like it's so inert. It's so oh, it's so inert. And don't even worry about it. It's not gonna be an issue. But these people have terrible human health effects because they're breathing burnt plastic. But then that is also sending the material up into the atmosphere, again propelling it because it's this warm air rising. It's again a consequence of the United States and other developed countries shipping the stuff that they can't profitably recycle. I will emphasize profitably because it's that's been the issue is that it's just not profitable to recycle. So we just don't bother. That's a perverse system in the United States of capitalism, which is we're totally fine profiting by making all this stuff, all this plastic, but totally uninterested in actually taking care of it and keeping it from getting into the environment because once the plastic industry makes it, it could just wipe its hands and and walk away and then blame us as consumers that we're not recycling enough. So recycling needs to, to be fixed, but it also cannot be a crutch that we that we stand on because at the end of the day we just need to stop producing so much plastic. Okay, friends, this next conversation is actually super special to me because Joel Kahn had been on my list for so, so long to interview on this show. Honestly, probably when I first launched it, he was on the initial dream list ever since I heard him debate Chris Kresser on Joe Rogan. And this was a situation where I had an article published in CNBC and Joel read it and reached out to me about collaborating. And I was just so incredibly excited. And I so enjoyed this conversation. I really like bringing on people, as you know, of all different perspectives. So I bring on the carnivores, the paleo, the keto, and the vegans. So we have Joel Kahn here today, who is very vegan and plant-based and a very renowned, well-known cardiologist. He's also a super nice guy, super kind guy. And what we talk about in this episode was from his most recent book, which I think is so, so important because when it comes to heart disease risk, we're talking about cholesterol. Some people are looking at ApoB, but very few people are looking at LP little a and its role in heart disease is profound. I think everybody needs to know this. I'm so grateful to Dr. Khan for spreading this awareness. So without further ado, please enjoy this excerpt from my interview with Dr. Joel Khan major question for you that relates to all of this. So I read your, you know, your newest book, Lipoprotein A, The Heart's Quiet Killer. I'm so fascinated by this. And it sounds like, do you think LP little a is one of the primary reasons that statins may or may not work for people? Yes. In fact, again, I, my life isn't all about social media, but I did post this morning, yesterday morning, 
you know, that if you take uh, large statin trials and people with serious heart disease, of course, I know your listeners know statins are like Lipitor, Crestor, the prescription drugs that block an enzyme in the liver and lower your production of LDL cholesterol. So your blood LDL cholesterol goes down, been used for about 35 years and have side effects, muscle aching, raise your blood sugar, give you brain fog, a little liver enzyme bump, but largely are quite safe and tolerable drugs if you use them intelligently. When you look at the trials across the uh, spectrum that have been done, and you know, big trials, 30,000, 20,000, 40,000 people, you add them all up, some of the largest studies ever done in medicine, you drop the risk that the patient has for a heart attack, a stent, a bypass, a death by about 40%. But that leaves 60%. That's actually called residual risk. And it may be that we're doing better than that now because we're not relying only on statins. We're relying on these combinations of various approaches and hopefully, hopefully lifestyle. And we may be reaching, you know, LDL cholesterol reductions of 50 to 60%, which may translate into even better results for the patients. But this, it's called residual risk. And it has been estimated that the biggest piece of the pie of residual risk, you know, why don't we eliminate 90% of a heart patient's risk for future events? Maybe this genetic cholesterol called lipoprotein A that still is in its infancy for being well-known and for being practiced by practitioners in terms of a simple blood test and counseling a patient, which is why I went out and wrote a simple but, you know, available book because nobody else in the world had written a book on what lipoprotein A is. You know, it's a, it's a molecule very similar in structure to LDL cholesterol but there's one extra piece added onto it that makes it totally different and totally unique. And um, 100% of people, their liver makes LDL cholesterol for survival, but 20 to 25% of people get a genetic ability on chromosome six, if I remember, that they're now able to make two cholesterols. They're able to make LDL cholesterol and lipoprotein A cholesterol. And lipoprotein A cholesterol in some people is a really bad actor, and it's 20 to 25% of people. And everybody's one blood test away of knowing if their parents gave them the ability to make it or didn't give them. You only need to do the blood test once if it's negative, but it can cause clotting of blood, thrombosis. It can cause atherosclerosis. It can easily be taken up by the lining of cells and become part of plaques, and it causes inflammation. And you know, if you had a plan, a heart attack or stroke, you drive up clotting, inflammation, and plaque formation. So lipoprotein A can cause heart attacks, cause strokes. It also uniquely can cause one of the four heart valves called the aortic valve to become damaged, calcified, and narrowed. And a lot of people have to deal in their 50s, 60s, and 70s with a condition called aortic stenosis that may require surgery or other procedures. And uh, lipoprotein A is the reason for the season and yet, you know, the estimates are 1% or 2% of patients seeing their doctor may get a lipoprotein A blood test, which Questlab, LabCorp, your local hospital, everybody runs it. It's, it's neither expensive nor exotic. It's harder to get the genetic test. It's simple to get a lipoprotein A blood test. So everybody should get it checked. The statins do not treat lipoprotein little a. They do not lower it. They either leave it neutral or they actually, unfortunately, actually cause it to go up and go higher and potentially become more dangerous. And so statins are, I think that's the reason there's residual risk because in these large studies, lipoprotein A wasn't measured. It turns out they were giving statins to 20 to 25% of the group 
that had lipoprotein A and driving lipoprotein A up while they were driving LDL cholesterol down. Now, you mentioned, because you're a sophisticated person and your audience is, you can still do the blood test called ApoB or apolipoprotein B, which is a combination of all the bad atherogenic particles in one blood test. And lipoprotein little a will show up in your ApoB blood test and LDL cholesterol will show up in your ApoB blood test. So if you have a serious heart patient and you put them on a statin and their LDL goes way down, which is the plan, and their lipoprotein A goes up a little bit, but the ApoB goes down, you've probably done them a net benefit. You've made one atherogenic particle better, you've made one atherogenic particle worse, but you can use the ApoB to say, overall, I help my patient. But I only can imagine what would have happened in those big statin trials if we would have segregated out those that had really high lipoprotein A and not included them in the trials. You probably would have seen who knows, um, projecting a much bigger drop in risk. And then, you know, there is no FDA-approved treatment for lipoprotein A, but a drug company out of Switzerland called Novartis, a drug company, Amgen, and a startup, I think it's called Silent Therapeutics, if I remember, all have drugs pretty far along in testing, probably going to be out in 2025 or so, that will be very expensive, but very helpful additions to the toolbox for those that don't have lipoprotein A will use this group of cholesterol-lowering drugs and lifestyle. And for those that have cholesterol and lipoprotein A will have new tools that seem to be very effective. We just have to wait for the FDA to say they also prevent stroke and heart attack because that's the criteria for drug approval nowadays. All right. Our next guest is somebody, which is an example of something I love about this show is when I have incredible guests on the show and then I become friends with them. I adore Chris Gethin. He is just the coolest and it is such an honor to know him. I really hope we get to hang out in person someday because he is just so, so cool and he's super inspiring. And we talked about so many things in my interview with him. And we've talked about so many things offline that it all sort of like runs together in my head. For example, we talk a lot about his epic travel skills and my lack of epic travel skills. But either way, how we both bring a lot of stuff requiring multiple suitcases because a girl and a guy have got to have their supplements and all the biohacking things and all the things. But in any case, he is an epic bodybuilder. He's an epic shape. And we talk about, can you do that while doing intermittent fasting? And his thoughts have actually changed on that historically. And then we also talk about things I love, like the differences in men and women and the importance of sleep. Gotta love it. Without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous excerpt from my interview with Chris Gethin. How strict are you with your approach to diet? You say in the book that you haven't missed a meal in, is it 18 years? or something? I hadn't. Hadn't. Oh. Yeah. Has that changed? Yeah, that changed in, in 2017 or 2018. Yeah, I had to go for a colonoscopy and uh, they asked me to fast. I thought, okay, well, I knew a lot about fasting. I'd been reading a lot about fasting. I thought, okay, let me try it. So I started doing a uh, fasting protocol because I wanted to know, am I going to lose muscle? Am I going to wither away? So I did I did actually start fasting. And, and now on my non-training days, I'll usually fast. Okay. Okay. This is so interesting. So what did you experience? Did you experience any muscle loss, any decline in performance implementing a fasting protocol? No, nothing. You know, I definitely felt it. 
on larger muscle groups. So if I was training legs, for instance, and I'd fat, and I was in a fasted state, I didn't feel as strong, or I wasn't as strong. I wasn't recovering. I wasn't able to perform at my best. But on smaller muscle groups, you know, like arms, shoulders, not a problem. I didn't feel any difference. And obviously, I know the benefits of fasting. And I thought, God, if anybody needs to fast, it's me after eating so many meals over so many years. And I wanted to reduce my biological age as well. So I started fasting on a regular basis. Like I did it for about eight months consistently to begin with. And then I just started bringing it back a little bit where I was just doing it, you know, a couple of times a week. Did you ever do like a, like a one meal a day type fast? I was doing two, two meals a day and it'd be like an 18 hour fast. I did try the Voltolongo five day fast as well. You made it through. I I made it like one day and I was like, I can't, I need more food. All oh, right. Yeah, I did it. I had, I had my friend and business partner with me doing it as well. So I think that helped. But what was so difficult is I was training during this time as well. So weight training and having, was it 500 calories a day on average? It was tough. It was tough. Very, very tough. And I, after the five days, I vowed never to do that again. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I've had him on the show twice actually and the second time I had him I was like I'm going to I'm going to do this. But for me, I think it's harder to have just a little bit cuz you're eating just like a little bit and that's just miserable at least to me. Yeah, that's the, that's a worse. I think I I I agree with you there. I think you'd be better off actually having nothing and getting used to it because it's like I don't know, it's like you you you're feeding your your I guess your appetite foreplay, but you're actually not following through. So, you know, you're doing that on a daily basis. It's, it's, it's not a happy ending. Yeah, I agree. Although I, I do know it, some people do it and they love it and it's like a great reset. So if people enjoy it, do it. It just doesn't work for me. Each to their own. How about men versus women? Is there a large difference in how they approach, I mean, everything, but like protein intake for men versus women, training, are there special considerations? And do you work with female clients? Yeah, I work with females and males. And I really don't have anything that different in the way that they train. The food is obviously according usually to their lean muscle mass. So let's say if it's one gram per pound of body weight, whether you're a male or female, that's generally what I found that works. I do find on a diet that a female's, I don't know, thyroid will downregulate a lot quicker. So sometimes as we're going into a calorie deficit towards an end of a program, let's say if they're getting ready for some event or some show, then I will give them kind of refeed days more often than I would with a male. Only because I just find their metabolism downregulates a lot quicker. So let's say, for instance, I'm just pulling this out of my hat, that I'm going to give a male a refeed day of higher carbohydrates every eight days. I may, I may do that every four or five days for a female because I'll just find, find that they plateau much quicker. Uh, but the, tra- the training is pretty much the same. You know, we have the same muscle insertions. We have the same muscle attachments, very similar digestive system. So everything else is very similar. Do you see between the two sexes, is one more inclined towards certain types of injury than the other? Or is that also pretty similar? Females are much smarter when it comes to training than guys, I notice. I think maybe it's an alpha thing, testosterone-filled, very competitive, you know, want to be the king of the jungle. So we'll train a little bit more haphazardly. We'll have more injuries. Like you never hear of a female tearing a pec or a bicep 
but guys, you do, you know, very, very often. So I think females are, are very much more smarter and articulate like a, you know, like an artist when they go to a gym. Well, when it comes to being smart about your training and your priorities with all of this, where is the priority for people? Is it the actual exercises? Is it the diet? Is it the mindset? <laughs> is it all of the above? If a new client came to you and was like, I want to you know, become the best in this bodybuilding, like, what would you say this is the most important thing to know? I usually start them on sleep. Sleep is usually the most important thing that I get. Oh, I like that answer. Yeah, I get them to prioritize sleep because if you're lacking in sleep, then again, you're dehydrated. You could possibly injure yourself. You're emotionally charged, so you crave more. So I, I try to get people's sleep and consistent habits in order first before even thinking about the training or your PBs or your goals. That is the goal because that's the goal that people seem to struggle with the most. You know, it's free. <laughs> it's much like if I tell clients to ground every day or meditate every day. Well, it's free. It's not going to work. So that's usually what I get them to focus on the most because that's what they should appreciate the most. You don't recover. You're not going to perform. Your recovery dictates your performance. And sleep is a big portion of that performance, you know, your recovery. So that's the one thing that I usually get people to focus on and hydration. I noticed uh, specifically in Europe, I uh, have a lot of clients that just drink coffee and tea and I think that's their hydration. So hydration is a big portion of it. You know, if your body's made up of around 70% fluid and you want to perform and maybe you live in a humid climate, you're just not going to. A lot of the time, if I look at, you know, all my, my own progress, if I'm down, uh, you know, I, I'm just not performing as I should from a mental and physical aspect, it's usually not the food. It's usually the fluid. That's another thing, a component that I'll focus on. And the consistency. Because, you know, if I look at someone's progress from the neck down, it's always coming from the neck up. So having the right mindset, especially when you've gone through an injury or you're depressed, you just got fired, you've just split up from your girlfriend. It's that consistency of being relentless in your pursuit is what's really going to count and what's really going to help you in the long term. Because if a client ghosts on me, it's usually because they've gone through a breakup or you know they've, got, they've been on holidays and they have shame now because they haven't followed the protocol as they should. But as I tell them, it's 10 times more important that you put your sincerity on a line and be transparent with yourself and with myself for you to pursue your goals. Otherwise, Life happens and you'll always fall off the rails. That's why, you know, when you do the cryotherapy, do you want to always do it? Probably not, but you do it because you know that's going to have a transcendence effect in your life anyway. All right. Our next guest is somebody I adore. I adore Dr. Caroline Leaf. I adore her daughter, by the way, who just so happens to be my sister's best friend and one of my really good friends. So I sort of feel like I'm talking to family here. But Dr. Caroline Leaf is so renowned in the world of neuroscience, and what I love about her work is that she actually shows the science behind things we think about, no pun intended, like the power of your thoughts and the power of your mindset for actually making changes in your brain. I didn't really realize until I read her work that our thoughts are actual things. Like you can see them in a picture that she has in her book and they look like trees. It's crazy. So please enjoy this excerpt where we talk about the fascinating effect that toxic thoughts can have on your biology 
including your biological age. For measuring the the 35 years, was that like a blood test or was it measuring telomeres or how did you measure that? Telomeres. So we do, yeah. So so the research that, that we do with my team, we look at the most important thing is we look at the person's narrative, the story. Who are you? What's going on in your life? What's happening? Most important, we want to describe, not diagnose. In our current biomedical model, it's very much symptom diagnose and aim a treatment that works beautifully for the physical brain and body, but doesn't work well when it comes to issues of life. We have to be much broader. So we look at the narrative, we look at psychological measures and self-regulation measures. I have a validation scale that's been validated, which means that you can look at how a person is self-regulating. The less self-regulated we are, the more the less managed our mind is and the more messy we become. Messy mind, messy brain, messy body, messy life. You can always fix up the mess, okay? So it can be a mess, but fix up the mess. Okay, so then we also look at the brain. I use QEG because the brain, we look at the frequencies in the brain, which is very accurate because we get a lot of, in terms of how the brain is responding to the current moment, and you can get a pattern average over time, but it gives you millions of bits of information per second on an energy level, which is very, very accurate. And then we look at, as well, at the body. So we look at things like, obviously, the obvious ones, cortisol, but ACTH. We even look at things like prolactin, which is a hormone that is in males and females, generally associated with women that are breastfeeding, but it's also in males. But there's very interesting research showing that it's linked to how we manage our stress levels. So there's an ideal range based on whether you're male or female, whether you are whatever age you're at, and Based on that, we've, we see from the research that if it goes out of that range, which then it's a problem. And it's very often knocked out of that range with the, uh, if we don't manage our minds. So if we, you know, we, all those scale of 1 to 10, those toxic thoughts, if we don't manage them, it affects our prolactin as well. And, and all these other ACTH, DHEA, we looked at a lot of different things. And then we also looked at telomeres. And telomeres are the ends of chromosomes and chromosomes unwinding through DNA. And telomeres are very involved in your cell cellular renewal, cellular turnover. And we are always making new cells. We make 800,000 to a million, somewhere, somewhere in that region, every second. So pretty much our body is constantly over time renewing itself. But we see that the quality of those cells is based on the quality of the telomere, which is like if, if you imagine making an X with your two fingers, that chromosomes look like Xs, then your fingernails would be the telomeres. And telomeres are activated by something called telomerase. And telomerase is very, very influenced by your mental state. So if the telomeres, they get, they do get shorter over time. So as you get older, naturally the telomeres will shorten. And when telomeres shorten, then you're not as strong and healthy. And that's part of the aging process. But you don't have to, you know, you, you can, you can, longevity is a real thing. You can, you can age in a much better quality way. So you can influence how you age and the quality of your telomeres. And the biggest factor there is we've thought for years it was pretty much diet and exercise. Those play a big role, but mind plays an even bigger role. So Lisa Eppel, I'm sure you've heard of her. She's and Elizabeth Blackburn are the leaders in when it comes to telomere research. And they actually reached out, Lisa Eppel reached out to me. But because of her research, I decided to include it in my research and to see because generally they didn't think telomeres could change not they, but the science, the world of science didn't think that telomeres could change in under five years. And But 
telomerase, the, an enzyme that activates it changes very quickly. So most research was done on telomerase. And then some people, Lisa Eppel and co, started looking at telomeres and found that they could change in shorter periods of time with things like meditation and so on. So I started doing research and we found that with mind management using the system called the NeuroCycle that I've developed, that you can actually increase significantly, statistically significantly increase the length and influence the decreasing length when you use mind management. So we found with our subjects that use the neurocycle, and that the case of that 35-year gain, that was a, one of the subjects in the, in the, in the clinical study, that particular, and that, this particular study that I'm talking about and the stuff that I'm talking about is in my other book, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, which you, you actually interviewed me about in the last podcast, and I reference the same research but very simplistically in the children's book, a parent's book, I should say, for children. But essentially, this one person at the beginning of the study was in the mid-30s and all of her, everything, the brain, psychological brain and all the biological tests, evaluations showed that she was had a body of a sickly 65-year-old, pretty much had given up on life. She was, actually was suicidal when she entered the study and was just, you know, had done everything, had every diagnosis, polypharmacy, had, was, was just so tired. And within... 21 days, she had her life had transformed. She'd been very badly abused as a child and she'd suppressed all these years and just this, the, she, she actually felt worse at day 21 because, but it was a different worse. She said it's, she feels worse. She's grieving now because she, she suddenly realizes that, that the neurocycle opened up her mind, her neuro, her non-conscious mind, subconscious to allow the, the, the trauma to come through to the conscious mind. And that was, she was grieving for, for what had happened which she had suppressed all those years. But the suppression had basically played havoc with her health. And she, all of her biological readings were terrible. Like she literally had a body of a sickly 65-year-old. And within nine weeks, her telomere length, all of her biological readings, everything had restored back to the correct levels for her age. So it was literally, if you look at biological aging, which is the age of your cells versus chronological, which is your actual age, you want them to be as close to each other as possible, preferably your biological age younger. Like mine is, I think, nearly 12 years younger than my chronological age. But you definitely don't want your biological age older than your chronological age. And this person did, started with more, almost 35-year-old chronological age. And then that went down to the actual age, close to the actual age once by the nine weeks into the study. So obviously, we've, you know, we're replicating, there was other subjects too, we're replicating that, we're doing more research on that. But we've got a lot of people now interested to see and take this research a little further. So that's what you're doing with your kids. You know, if you come at it on a proactive level, we, we want to, as as throughout our life, we have to manage our mind. Your mind drives you 24-7. So we need to manage our mind 24-7. We need to go to bed managing our mind. We need to be managing our mind. Otherwise, we get into these overwhelmed, burnout, can't cope. And when our mind's messy, we don't see things clearly, as we all know. And that can accelerate into quite severe brokenness in our minds, which can lead to all kinds of, of things, sig signals shooting out at us, like, you know, broke a really broken, traumatized mind, can you can hear voices and, you know, there's a lot of psychosis. And those are not illnesses. Those are just signals of a very, very, very broken mind that completely disrupts functioning. So we don't want to, to reach those levels. We want to be able to get harness this in and and work through it. And that's, that's pretty much what the neurocycle is doing. And we want to be proactive about this. So we want to start not just fixing up on the 
back end, but we want to be proactively teaching children from as young as we possibly can how to be able to recognize that when I feel this way, I'm not broken. It's okay to be a mess. There is a way of getting through this. I have a, you know, the tools to, to tell my narrative. Even that two-year-old who doesn't have the linguistic skills, they can pick up Brainy and that's a signal to mom that there's something wrong. You know, if you're following the systems, Brainy becomes the tool of you know, your mental health journey and that kind of stuff. So that's what I've tried to be proactive from both angles. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Okay, our next guest, and I promise I will stop saying how much I am obsessed personally with these guests and how they have become friends. Actually, I don't promise that I'm going to stop saying that because I love these people so much. Ben Azadi. Ben Azadi is the type of person where if you meet anybody who knows Ben Azadi, the first thing they'll say is, he is such a nice, awesome person, like something to that effect. Because Ben Azadi is such a nice, awesome person. He is so kind, so empathetic, so knowledgeable, and doing really profound things. He's doing a lot in the keto world and just the health world in general. It was an honor to be on his show, and it was an honor to have him on mine. There were so many things I could have pulled out from the episode to showcase, but I really wanted to do this one because when I posted about it on my Instagram, whoo, it started a little bit of um, little bit of debate. <laughs> about whether or not this practice was super helpful, super amazing, everybody should do it, or is it neurotic and crazy? So what do you guys think? You'll have to listen and let me know. Please enjoy this excerpt from my conversation with Ben Azadi. So also within this dietary fat world, you talk about polyunsaturated fats, seed oils, things like that. And you talk about a very shocking concept that you make the case, and I think it was quoting somebody who did some research, but it was making the case that a certain type of dietary fat could actually be worse than smoking. Why would that be? Yeah, so I I interviewed a gentleman named Brian Peskin, who's an MIT researcher, Professor Peskin. I've actually, he came down to Miami a few years ago. We had lunch together and we recorded a podcast. And he's, he's probably, him and probably Dr. Kay Shanahan have probably done the most research on polyunsaturated fatty acids and fish oil and different fats. So I asked him the question, I said, what do you what do you think is worse? You know, smoking cigarettes or eating these vegetable oils, these polyunsaturated fats. And he said, well, according to his research, if somebody smoked two packs of cigarettes every day for 25 years, 28 years or so, the chances of them developing lung cancer within those 25, 28 years 
is about 16%, one six. Then he said, if somebody ate these vegetable oils every day for 28 years, the chances of them developing cancer or heart disease is about 86%. Now, that's one man's research, and he threw in one type of cancer with all cancers and heart disease. So we got to consider that. I get that. But then I asked the same question to Dr. Kay Shanahan, who, as many of your listeners know, she wrote a great book called Deep Nutrition. She's a medical doctor. She was the nutritionist for the Los Angeles Lakers when Kobe Bryant used to play. And I I recently had a conversation with her and and I gave her three scenarios. I said, Dr. Kate, scenario number one, well, actually I said this first, three scenarios, which one causes more disease, which one is more inflammatory? So I said, scenario number one, somebody smokes cigarettes every day. Scenario number two, somebody eats processed sugar every single day. Scenario number three, somebody eats vegetable oils every single day. Which one is worse, Dr. Kate? And she giggled and she said, Ben, that's an easy question. It is the vegetable oils. She said, if you were to smoke cigarettes, of course, that's not good for you. But the toxicity, the damage is done after your last puff, that's not getting stored in your body. Then she said, of course, processed sugar is not good for you. But if you ate it in excess or had a piece of cake or whatever it is, you could exercise, you could burn it off. That could store it as regular body fat. You could burn it off. She said, these seed oils, also called linoleic acid, they stick around for a very long time. She estimates, and other researchers estimate, the half-life for these inflammatory fats are 680 days, meaning if you remove them today, 680 days later, about two years later, half of them will still remain in your body fat, creating inflammation, creating cell membrane and receptor site inflammation, inflaming the mitochondrial membrane, That's why she believes they're worse than cigarettes, and Brian Peskin believes they're worse than cigarettes. So the reason is because of the processing. And I want to make this clear for your audience, and I'm not sure where you stand here with this, Melanie. Not all omega-6 fats are bad, okay? It's the adulterated ones that we're talking about here. It's the processing of them. It's the chemical, uh, the, the ingredients they're putting in there, the detergents, the bleaching, the dyeing, the high pressure, the high heat it makes them very unstable. These fats called polyunsaturated fatty acids, the chemical structure shows that poly means many. And these fats have many double bonds. And the more double bonds a fat has, the more oxygen it attracts. And when you use a lot of high pressure and high heat, it is aggressively attracting oxygen and it is oxidizing during the processing of these oils. So they're already rancid and toxic before you even consume them. And they're everywhere. You go to Whole Foods supermarket, yeah, you're going to see the American Heart Association put their stamp of approval on canola oil. You go to the fanciest restaurant in the world, they're going to use you know, maybe olive oil that's cut with a soybean or canola oil. So I have come up with something really cool. I think it's cool. When I go to restaurants, Melanie... I always ask the server, hey, what do you cook your food in? What oils do you use? And they're going to say canola or soybean or olive oil that's cut. They're going to use one of these inflammatory oils. So I always tell them, and it drives my fiance crazy sometimes, but I always tell them, hey, we're allergic to those oils. Can you use coconut oil or olive oil that's not cut? Or do you have butter? Or can you grill it or do something else where you're not using the oils? And most of the time they say yes, but you got to say you're allergic. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I was talking about that I I did that was super cool. I have come to find that even though I've been telling my students 
in my community to make that request that they're allergic, most of them don't do it. And I think they don't do it because they just feel uncomfortable or they might be at a table with people and they might look weird. So here's the cool thing that I developed. Oh, I'm excited to hear this. I created a seed oil allergy card and I'm holding it right here in front of me and your audience could get it for free. But here's what it says. It says allergy card at the top. Dear chef, I have food allergies to vegetable oils. In order for me to avoid an allergic reaction, I must avoid everything marked off below. Canola, corn, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, cottonseed, rice bran, soybean oil. Please use the following alternatives that are safe. Avocado oil, duck fat, olive oil, beef tallow, coconut oil, lard, ghee, butter. Please make sure the approved alternatives are not cut with the allergic options. Thank you for keeping me safe. So now it's so easy. Just print this out or put it on your phone and just show the server this and they're going to make that request. So your audience could get it over at seedoilcard.com. It's a free free download, seedoilcard.com. All right. Our next guest is somebody that honestly, I've been wanting to interview for so, so long, ever since launching the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, because Thomas DeLauer is very famous in the intermittent fasting world. And what I will say that I was so excited to experience with Thomas is he's such a legend, such a brand, such an image. And I think in general, in the social media world and the content world, sometimes things become a little superficial with that or a little clickbaity. Thomas is the real deal. Like he knows his stuff. And I was talking to him and I mean, he just like knew his stuff. I was so excited. The episode was honestly just so valuable. It was hard to pick which clip to use for this best of episode, but I definitely really like what he said when it comes to men versus women and burning fat. We dismantled some myths there. So please enjoy this conversation with Thomas DeLauer. This is the, I don't even like using the word conclusion because that makes it sound like it's settled, but this is what I had found as well in researching men and women and fat burning was that women tend to look like they're they seem to be better fat burners and, you know, better with exercise and burning fat and all of that. But then, but some people will say the complete opposite, you know, that women just that, you know, that fat burning is that men do it better. So what are your thoughts on men versus women and fat burning and fasting? Yeah, I was trying to pull up the study if I could find it, but essentially women seem to do better utilizing fats, basically the action of adrenaline and hormone sensitive lipase seem to utilize fat better through that simple pathway, which is really like one of the only pathways that seems to be, they, they seem to do marginally better than men, which would imply that if adrenaline is higher and the percentage of fat burned in that situation is better then yeah, women would actually do better with fasting and do better with high intensity work and do better with things like keto where there is a higher catecholamine output. So if you, yeah, I'm going to see if I can find it really quick because it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I've definitely read like that one or one really similar to it. Yeah. Journal of Applied Physiology. Adrenaline burns more fat in women than men since women have a higher fat percentage of men of the same weight, not only in their bodies, but also within their muscles. It would also make sense as the primary energy source. So they're more sensitive to the lipolytic action of epinephrine compared with men while maintaining similar glucoregulatory effects. So women burn more fat, less carbohydrates, and less protein than men at the same exercise intensity. It's really interesting because that's what I've seen and I've seen it in multiple studies but then I'll just see like very simple sentences like that just say, you know, women 
are not as adapted to burning fat as men. And do you think that's because, and if so, why? It seems like when it comes to, quote, problems with keto and fasting, women seem to have more, quote, problems. Like it becomes too stressful or like, what do you think is the nuance there? I think that's probably just the fact that women have a lot of complicated things going on. Like it's just, you know, it's, it's probably not apples to apples all the time. It's definitely not apples to apples, but it's not apples to apples each and every day. You know, men have relatively homeostatic sex hormones and well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, they fluctuate a lot too, but nothing like a ladies would. So there's a lot of complicated things and there's a lot of rebound and there's a lot of homeostatic, like sort of feedback loops and that's probably what makes it more complicated is who knows, perhaps like one day women would burn fat more and the next day they wouldn't. But I also think that when you look at like a large cohort of women, like just the stress of like child rearing and all that comes with that, like who knows, like there could be a heightened cortisol response. It also could be, this is purely speculative, but maybe there's more of an evolutionary role where they utilize fat better than men because they are probably more stressed out than men. Like you actually think about, again, I'm not an anthropologist. It would be really fun to like interview some anthropologists and like bring them into our world because I feel like that's what needs to be done because there's a lot of just misinformation about like people like total BS about this is how our ancestors ate. And like, is it really, do you really know? Like what's that? Guy? I don't know if you've seen that show on Netflix, like that anthropology show with that guy. He's been on Rogan before. I can't remember his name. I think I just listened to his interview on Rogan. He's awesome. And he gave me so much hope because I'm not a scientist, right? People call me a pseudoscientist and he's like, and I'm like, I'm not even pretending to be a scientist. Like, I don't even want to be a scientist. I'm just good at articulating this stuff. And he's like, I'm no more a pseudoscientist. I am no more a pseudoscientist then a dolphin is a pseudo fish. And I was like, I love that. It's like, it's perfect because he's like, I'm not trying to be a scientist. Just like a dolphin's not trying to be a fish. He just is what it freaking is. And like, I, here I am look and like, it's the same with me. But the reason that I mentioned that is like, maybe women have the more stressful role. Think about it. Like men kind of like, (laughs) it seems as though they would go out and hunt and then they'd probably just come back and sit on their asses all day. And then they'd go like, they probably, and like, most of the research we have seen with that, and Dr. Tommy Wood had talked about this, is that they're relatively sedentary like beings. And an athletic individual today, an athlete today is estimated to be six times more active than like the most active hunter-gatherer. So it's like we think, like, I want to be a caveman. Do you really? Like, because the cavemans weren't probably weren't jacked. And the cavemen probably were like skinny fat and probably just like hunted for short bursts and then sat around and gathered nuts most of the time. So like, is that what you want to do? Whereas the women probably had the tough job of actually like wrangling children and like actually had chronic stress, whereas the men might have like acute stress and then they go sit on their ass. So like, that's probably what it was. But again, I'm not an anthropologist and that would just make sense. Like, okay, well maybe women were designed to be a little bit more stressed out and utilize fuel accordingly. Whereas men were not as good at utilizing fat because they were less active. (laughs) All right. Our next guest, I cannot recommend enough. Everybody read her book, The Immunotype Breakthrough. It will blow your mind about the immune system. It finally answered all the questions I had about the immune system. And then interviewing Heather in person was so incredible because I got to ask my nitty gritty questions and dive deep into all of it. And we tackled so many things in the episode. It was so hard to pick what to highlight, but I in particular was fascinated about something, and I, side note, 
I hate that I can't even say this word without it sounding political, but this is not political. The effect that sleep has on the effectiveness of when you get a vaccine. Kind of crazy, kind of mind-blowing. It's something where I don't know why this isn't being prescribed as part of the protocol of getting vaccines surrounding all of that. So please enjoy this excerpt with Dr. Heather Mode. So I was actually reading in another book, it was talking about circadian rhythms in the body, and it was saying that the immune system basically has four jobs of surveillance, repair, attack, and cleanup. And it was saying that these are not task-driven. Like it was saying that you would think it would be like you get an invader and that, you know, it's like surveilling and then there's the invader and attacks and then it repairs and cleans up. But it was saying that it's completely circadian rhythm-driven so that all that's not happening at once and it happens at different times. And it was saying that sepsis is actually when all of that happens at the same time. When we get exposed to a pathogen or something, what is the role of circadian or peripheral rhythms in that? Like you talk about sleep, how stuff happens when we sleep. So I wouldn't say that it doesn't happen other times. I would say that routinely, you know, it's sort of like, you know, if you think about it, like if you only cleaned your house or took your garbage out once a month, you'd be in a lot of trouble, right? (laughs) So you got to do it every day. However, you're still going to be able to attack and, you know, do that kind of stuff, repair even at a time of the day that wouldn't be say like normal, right? So the normal routine maintenance work, I would say of our immune system is, is definitely driven pretty significantly by circadian rhythm, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening at other times when we need it. That's why it is so important to have like healthy sleep habits and things like that, because Our immune system actually is, and I write about this, is that it's pretty active while we sleep. And, you know, I actually learned quite a bit when I was doing research in this area, because this is an area, obviously, I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't really think about the fact that, you know, sleep is a really, really mysterious, like for, for, you know, the longest time, we had no idea why humans actually slept. Why? Why do we sleep half of our lives? And why is it that if you try to sleep deprived people, you can actually kill them? And part of it is that if you think about it, if we had to do all this work of, you know, not only like killing microbes and making antibodies and cleaning up our brain and repairing tissue and stuff like that, if we had to do that while we were like walking around, moving our muscles, talking, breathe, you know, thinking, you know, all that kind of stuff, there's no way it could happen. And so it's really a downtime for our, the rest of our body where our immune system can actually be super active while we're not aware of it. The sleep chapter was fascinating. You're just talking about how when we are sleeping, that's really when immune activity really ramps up. So for people who are, and because we haven't even gotten into the immunotypes yet, but for people who tend to err on a side of a more inflammatory response in their body, is it possible that when they sleep, they actually might get more inflamed? I don't think they get more inflamed. I think that, you know, because I think part of it is that while we're, you know, we have that inflammatory response early in the evening, that's, you know, when I talk about like during that non-REM deep sleep and melatonin is very active and we have a lot of cytokine activity, but the rest of the evening when, when cortisol starts to kick up in the early morning hours, we actually resolve inflammation. So 
we want to be able to do the cleanup, right? And then go back to like a nice homeostasis. So when we are sleep deprived, whether it's front end, back end, we can have ongoing inflammation because we haven't done a lot of cleanup. So we have like things that linger. So, I mean, everyone's had the experience when they're starting to get like a tickle or something like that, but they're like, oh, I got to stay up and write a paper or I've got to do this thing. I've still got to work or I, they try to like go exercise, you know, get to the gym and then they just get sicker and sicker and sicker (laughs) because they're skimping on their sleep instead of being like, you know what? I feel this coming on. I need to go to bed and like get, you know, 10 hours of sleep because you know how that feels. You're going to feel better. You're going to actually start to, to heal because you're giving, you're giving the space for your immune system to do its work. It's fascinating. You mentioned, I feel like they should integrate this into public policy, the role of like when people get vaccines and the antibody response that they mount based on their levels of sleep they got. They do not say that. And I'm like, I don't understand why that's not public policy, that it's not some, or at least not even that's public policy, but it's something that should be, should really be something that when someone comes in for a vaccine, they say, okay, well, tonight you need to make sure that you don't go out and party that you need to go home and sleep because your response to this vaccine really hedges a lot on giving your immune system time to actually do the work because it's the immune system that does the work, right? I mean, the vaccine's there, but your, your immune system is what gives you that, you know, the lasting protection. In the studies, is it the sleep directly following the vaccine or directly prior? You know what? I think it's actually both, but most importantly is right after, is that evening because, you know, you've gotten the, you have then gotten the, whatever it is, if it's a killed vaccine or a live vaccine or mRNA or whatever, it's, it's to help your body then do the work. So really I would say after. That is just really fascinating. That should definitely be more well-known. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. All right, our next guest is an example of 
And now I'm just thinking about how, with all these guests, I'm talking about how they're examples of different situations. But this is an example of a topic I wanted to tackle so, so bad. And I knew that I had to have the perfect person for that topic. And I knew it would just come to me. And that's what happened. When Chris Gethin, who you heard earlier in the show, offered to connect me to Dr. Dom, I was like, yes, please. And then furthermore, I read his book and it was everything I could want it to be and more when it comes to oral health. I really think everybody should read his book. It's all in your mouth because it will change your perspective of the world, honestly, because you will realize just how intensely your oral health relates to your whole physical body in general. It's crazy stuff. And wait until you hear Dr. Dom's perspective on flossing. This is so fascinating. So if it doesn't show up on x-ray or comb beam, do you just have to find a biological dentist? And then does he just diagnose based on symptoms and then do surgery assuming he's going to find? No, no, you, the best, no, no. The gold standard to diagnose is actually a cone beam. What I was saying before was most dentists don't know about the issues, so they don't know how to diagnose it on a cone beam because they don't even know what to diagnose it because they don't even heard they haven't even heard about cavitations, just have no idea about it. So we use a we use the cone beam, and we have a separate machine which is a it's called a cavitao, which is an ultrasound that we can also use on top to make it even more sure. And then only then, if we have a solid diagnosis, we do it. But patients fly in from all over the world. Mostly, so more people come from all over the world than from Germany, actually. And therefore, we plan everything remotely, not with a cone beam, with, with, but just with a simple panoramic two-dimensional x-ray. Because I can already see that the wisdom teeth have been taken out. And then my assumption is, okay, 90% of all cases, this patient would have cavitations. So we plan that. And then when you come in for the health optimization week, where we take care of everything, then we do the cone beam, then we do the cavitar, then we make the perfect diagnosis. But preliminary, we use a two-dimensional panoramic x-ray. Another just offshoot question that it made me think of, because you were talking about the healing process from surgery. You talk a lot in your book about implants, for example, and how the recovery for that is really important. And what is the recovery as far as like immediately putting in implants or not? Like what's the conventional way of doing implants? And what do you think is important? So an implant is a artificial root. So if you lost your root to a root canal or the tooth is just gone and you need to replace the missing tooth, generally you need an implant. And 99.7% of all dentists still do titanium, which is a metal. And what we do is we use ceramic implants. And now it's finally medically accepted and even newly been classified as a biomaterial. So zirconia ceramic implant, what we do is a biomaterial, a titanium metal implant is a foreign particle. The foreign particle always heals within a chronic inflammatory response. So foreign body reaction, cytokines like TNF-alpha versus zirconia implant only osteointegrates within your body if your body is anabolic and can build bone and tissue. That's simple. So what we do, specialty, is we remove all root canals anyways, clean the socket, clean everything perfectly, and then, if possible, we place an immediate ceramic zirconia implant to stabilize the socket, kind of like as a tent pole, so we don't lose any anatomy. And one of my business partners just got a root canal. Now he's having 
all of these issues. And I was talking with my friend about it. And it's interesting, my friend was saying, you know, that's why we need to have good oral hygiene. And I was like, well, I'm actually reading a book right now. And I think, (laughs) so what do the studies show on oral hygiene practices and how they relate to oral health? Does it correlate? So there's studies and there's studies. So obviously the studies that most dentists read are the ones that are sponsored by any sort of company. And I'm not sure if they're the right ones. So let's see it from a different point of view. So oral hygiene obviously is important, but there are, and there's, a good, there's good data about our ancestors. They didn't brush their teeth. They only ate the right foods, which actually brushed their teeth because eating hard stuff will clean the teeth. So they didn't really have any sort of tooth decay or oral inflammation. And they redid this study, or they, they did a study out of it actually in the in Germany, I think two years ago, where they compared a control group that ate the standard Western diet with a paleolithic kind of eating way only for four weeks. And after four weeks, 100% reduction of inflammation in the group that was eating how we're supposed to eat versus the other ones. So they hypothesized that nutrition and lifestyle might be a bigger thing than the oral hygiene part, which I'm, this is what I'm seeing for, for 10 years already, but I'm happy if studies coming out. So hygiene is important. I see it different than the hygiene that we are all trained to do so. So I think the usual hygiene is you have to brush your teeth with a fluoride toothpaste. You should use chemical mouthwashes and you floss. That's basically what you should do, right? And then you go to see the hygienist twice a year, and this is how you manage your oral health. This is what you what you get trained in university, and as you know, most people are having a hard time to change what they've learned. So they believe in what they learned and what you read, and that fluoride is the best thing to do. So even functional dentists that I know that are a little bit more open-minded can kind of attack me if I say flossing is unnatural. Oh, flossing is unnatural. Yeah, for example, I say flossing is super unnatural. So, but obviously, I obviously come from a different perspective. My perspective is that nature has it right. And that if everything is perfectly healthy and you eat the right stuff and you have no deficiencies, you don't have tooth decay. Your body is immune against tooth decay and you don't have bleeding gums. They're just not bleeding. And then if you introduce flossing, it might be that the teeth are very tied together in a regular system and you floss, it can happen that you cut yourself with the floss and you bleed from the flossing. It's a total different perspective than the regular dentist who sees the average person. The average person has bleeding gums. The average person has periodontitis or at least gingivitis and obviously tooth decay because this is the number one chronic disease worldwide with an incidence of 90%. So yes, In this super unnatural oral ecosystem, you might need a chemical band-aid like fluoride and flossing and chemical mouthwashes, but that shouldn't be the long-term solution. Okay, how to end this show? I just knew intuitively I had to end this show with the last guest that I most recently hung out with in person at her home in London for Thanksgiving. Charlotte Fox Weber, if you're listening to this, I adore you. Our conversation on this show was, I think, the longest episode I've ever recorded. And there's a reason for that, because we are kindred spirits and souls. And I am obsessed with the work that she's doing. 
Her book, Tell Me What You Want, is such a haunting, beautiful picture of our secret wants and desires, and you will feel so not alone because you'll realize that so many people want things secretly that maybe you thought you were the only person who had these secret wants and desires, and maybe you felt bad about that. Don't feel bad about that. (laughs) Read her book. She also has done incredible writings beyond that. She has an incredible piece in Time Magazine that I highly recommend everybody check out. It's called I Fell for a Famous, Much Older Artist Than He Got Violent. I will put a link to it in the show notes. But in any case, back to today's episode, it was so hard to pick what to pull out for this episode. So I figured might as well land on something that just talks about what I was talking about earlier, which is just being okay with yourself. And beyond that, the role of the ego, because friends, I am haunted by the ego. I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with my therapist about the ego and my ego. I literally have had conversations with my therapist where I started crying because I was so distressed about the thought of my ego. (laughs) So talking about the ego with Charlotte Fox Weber was such a moment. Definitely check out the full episode with her. But in the meantime, enjoy this very brief clip from our conversation, which I treasure so, so much. So Charlotte Fox Weber, take it away. What do you feel about this idea of women in society and how it's not okay to be, like I just said, you can't be powerful or and beautiful and intelligent and all these things. Like there's got to be, like that's like not okay or you judge yourself for it. It's not okay. I mean, I think it is okay. But yes, we are told it's in so many ways that it's not okay. And we're given mixed messages. So on the one hand, love yourself, respect yourself, empower yourself, even have gratitude. But on the other hand, like, don't be full of yourself. Don't be greedy. Don't be demanding. Don't be needy. Like, don't be bossy. There are so many injunctions that are con- invisible injunctions, like rule books that we're carrying around in our heads that come from different voices of authority and and systems and cultures and religions and family values and friend groups, we get really judgmental about actually liking ourselves. And it can be weirdly difficult and totally worthwhile to let yourself enjoy the moments of really liking yourself, liking how you look, liking how you sound, liking something you've achieved, liking just how you feel, whatever it is. I think we need to encourage ourselves and each other to just really be okay with that. But we're kind of stop starting a lot when it comes to ego, because there is some ego in that. And ego is not the same as narcissism. Like ego is sense of self and individuality. And yes, it can be out of control, but so can everything. And I think it's, I think it's a really unreasonable and punishing message that we should have no ego, get rid of the ego. And we say it a a lot of the time. I mean, I used to say it or hear myself saying it years ago, like, no, no, that's egoy. Like, I don't want ego. Like it, it, it was a dirty word. And if we allow that we have ego, then it's a healthy thing that can be worked with. And it doesn't have to kind of make you a dictator or 
make you unbearably arrogant, but pretending to have no ego or, or really diminishing yourself and feeling diminished to the point of not thinking you matter, it can make your life just so miserable. Like I said earlier, I'm, I'm haunted by this idea of the ego. And like you said, we make it a synonym for narcissism. Like bad, basically just bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you could have, I guess, a more appropriate synonym for the ego, or maybe would be the, just the authentic self. Like this is. Yeah. I, I love ego because it's just three letters and ego is my amigo. It's one thing I like to think of and it's so simple, but yeah, you could, you could find a replacement if ego is tarnished as a word. But I think part of the problem with the word itself is that it has so many different meanings and definitions and interpretations, like even just historically for what it means. But a sense of your own worth, that that we are worthwhile and even more than worthwhile, like we can be we can be fond of ourselves. We can enjoy our own company. We can really like something that we've done or something about who we are. So I think that desire comes into all of that because if you don't consider your own desires, then you can't really have a picture of who you are. I read a quote and it was saying that the way that we should view ourselves is basically like we're a picture that somebody else painted, like appreciating a picture, like for self-love, like appreciating something that we didn't create. There's like no quote ego and really appreciating a picture that somebody else drew. But if you drew it, then it's like, oh, then it feels egotistical. But so it's like, if we could have that perspective, like just a third party objective. If you could see yourself through rose tinted glasses. (laughs) Yes. Or like as another person, like appreciating yourself. Or even just through clear, uh, clear eyes, like just seeing yourself with that, with enough air to have an actual viewpoint. But I think, I think we get so kind of locked into our own heads that there's this great expression, the eye cannot see its own eyelashes. And you can't really see yourself in your own, your own wonderfulness or difficulties with absolute perspective. Like it's not, I think that it's important to not think that you can really, really know exactly who you are because it's not as if you're then able to kind of arrive at ego confirmed and then that's it. It, It's an ongoing process and it's an interesting, curious, playful, adventurous process of discovery and change and growth. And I think sometimes just knowing that we can't yet see ourselves with clarity is a really big revelation. So like the picture, whatever, whatever confused and contradictory picture we have of ourselves, we don't really understand exactly how we think about ourselves. Okay, friends, I hope you enjoyed this collection for part one of the best of episodes. Originally, I was going to do just one best of episode, but there are just so many incredible guests and moments that there needs to be a part two. So stay tuned for that next week. 
And I will say, when I take the moment to go back and just revisit all of these conversations and moments, I am just filled with so much gratitude for this show, for all of you guys, because I couldn't be a podcaster without all of the listeners. I'm just so grateful that I get to interview such incredible people and learn so much and especially be exposed to so many different viewpoints because I think, especially in today's society, we often get siloed in certain opinions and biases. And of course, we are always going to come from our own perspective, but hopefully with this show, something I can do is just bring on a lot of ideas so everybody can find what works for them personally. So on that note, I hope everybody is having the most beautiful of holidays and has a lot to reflect on for 2023 and is looking forward to an incredible 2024. Again, stay tuned next week for best of part two. And definitely join me on Instagram and my Facebook groups and all the things. Happy holidays. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.